Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 116 of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is Mike here, and I recently had the opportunity to speak on the Business of Podcasting panel at Startup Week Columbus. And if there's one thing I noticed, it's that a lot of people out there are interested in starting their own podcast but aren't sure where to start. So we've decided to put together a podcast startup package with everything we've learned about building and growing a podcast to help you get there. You can pre-register for the Conquering Columbus podcast startup package now by heading over to our website, conqueringcolumbus.com. I hope you guys enjoy this episode, and as always, we hope you learn a lot. Before we get to that interview, though, I want to ask you all for a quick favor. If you haven't already, pick up your phone and hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're listening on. It really helps support our show, and it'll make sure you never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. We also want to take a moment to thank some of our supporters. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. Our next sponsor you might be slightly familiar with. You may recall a previous Conquering Columbus episode we did, episode number 26. We interviewed Stuart Crane, who bootstrapped his healthware software business to an eventual $43 million exit in 2013. Well, he's back at it with a new startup called Voice Metrics, based here in Columbus, Ohio. Stuart's new company got going last fall, and they've landed a number of customers, including Crosschecks, which is one of Columbus's high flying VC backed companies. Voice Metrics is a voice application available for Alexa. Google Assistant, and Siri that allows businesses to get their KPIs, metrics, and any business information just by asking. To give you an example of how this works, here's what it sounds like. Open voice metrics. Good morning, Robert. Our sales yesterday was $17,500, and we had 24 new signups. Website traffic is up 13%, and we are 82% to our monthly revenue goal. Have a great day. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at GoFMX.com. Mike here again. Do you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus? We are looking for some new supporters to help keep the show going in 2018. To inquire about how you can help support the podcast, please send an email to Mike at ConqueringColumbus.com. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire 
to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, our guest is Tanny Crane, and Tanny is the president and CEO at the Crane Group, which got its start as Crane Plastics back in 1947, with her grandfather as the founder, and since then, she's joined the company in 1987, and a lot has changed. She's quickly risen through the ranks, becoming one of the most well-known and well-respected executives in Columbus, and today, she leads the Crane Group, which invests in a variety of portfolio companies, and even works with some early stage startup entrepreneurs, both locally and globally. And Tenny is on the board for Huntington Bait Shares, as well as Ohio Health, and has a passion for community service, which we'll talk more about later. And we're really excited to have her here with us today. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Tenny. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Yeah, so how's your day going so far? It's an awesome day. It's, it started out with one of my favorite places, Reeb Avenue Center. Got to talk to two of our CEOs as well. Uh, talked about investments in our business did some Huntington business as well, and then end up here. Well, it's always a good way to end the day with Conquering Columbus. But uh, so earlier you were talking a little bit about everything you got going on. You got uh, a wedding coming up right in two weeks in your own backyard, and I'm sure planning for that's been kind of crazy. But we'd like to kind of kick it back a little bit, talk a little bit about what life was like growing up for you and, you know, family, childhood, siblings, where you study, that sort of thing. So uh, feel free to kick it away. Sure. So grew up here in Columbus, in Upper Arlington, uh, four kids in our family, two brothers, my sister and myself, kind of typical um, childhood, two older brothers, so they always beat up on us, so I think I got tough early on. I always followed them around in their Boy Scouts and in the car and everywhere. My mom was an active volunteer her whole life. She actually started at Six on Your Side. It was actually started with Channel 10, so she and her uh, a friend started helping consumers who had issues go to the TV station and get things worked on. My dad was always in the business. I found that I, you know, early days he was always traveling, so I didn't see him all that much, but really adored my dad as well as my mom. I mean, grew up playing uh, in gymnastics. Um, I was an avid reader. I was a Girl Scout, did a lot of community service. And then, you know, in high school, I ended up my senior year deciding that I was going to do a work study, much to my parents' wonderment. So I, w I uh, and a couple of friends and I, we joined Wendy's, a new Wendy's was opening in the area. And so we went to school in the morning, our senior year in the afternoon, we actually opened this Wendy's and I became the drive-through cashier and we set records. So that was awesome experience, which actually led, didn't directly lead me to it, but I became a member of the Wendy's board. And I always hearken back to my experience working in Wendy's. So that's a little bit of my, my growing up, just typical great childhood. That's, that's an incredible story. I wonder how many Wendy's cashiers go on to be a part of the board. <laughs> and as you went through that experience, you know, seeing um, what your grandfather did, your father did, and then being alongside your mother who was also starting things, what did it look like with you? Did you have an entrepreneurial spirit that kind of built up, or did you have any vision for yourself as you went through your years up until you know, like the Wendy situation or before college on where you would go and how things would end up? I have tons of ideas. I went through, you know, okay, so way, way, way back when it was cool to travel in the air, you know, I, I wanted to be a stewardess. I mean, that was like the cool thing to be. That was in like third grade. And then I wanted to be a teacher. Then I wanted to be a psychologist. So I don't know if I had entrepreneurial spirit, but I always, I always wanted to do things that weren't like 
the common things to do. And you know, even uh, you know, where I ended up going to college was nowhere any of my friends were going, but it was where my older brother went, my oldest brother went to school. And we grew up in an environment where there was anti-nepotism. So we didn't have an opportunity to think about the family business. It was off limits to us, to all of us, uh, including my cousins. I have four cousins and um, their parents. So the great part about that and the real luxury of that was we got to follow our passion. You know, it wasn't that we were going to be in the family business like so many of my friends. And so we really got to pursue whatever interested us. So I, I was able to do things in co I worked through college, um, tried a lot of different ideas, and then really figured that business is where I wanted to be. Did you figure that out right when you got to college, or did you kind of find your way through studying on, on that towards the end of your college career? Well, it was interesting. So I, ended, I started at Northwestern and liberal arts. Um, I worked in our dorm cafeteria. Loved that. I worked at an ice cream shop. And when I finally figured out that business is where I, what I was interested in, Northwestern had decided to devote its resources to its graduate business school. So it didn't have any undergraduate business courses. So that's why I ended up transferring back to The Ohio State University my junior year. Um, and when I came back to Ohio State, I worked as a teller at the Drake Union. There was a, a branch of City National, back then it was City National Bank, now Chase. And I loved the social interactions of being a teller and you know, chatting with people. So when I graduated, I actually stayed with the bank. Well, actually, I decided I wanted to go into, go get my um, MBA. And again, back then, prehistoric ages, people quite often went right into graduate school versus worked for five or 10 years. But I deferred my acceptance, and I worked for a year at City National Bank in their trust department um, that made me a supervisor. So it was just, I was just experimenting. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I didn't really, I hadn't really established a passion for anything. But when I went to Northwestern for my MBA, it was a four-quarter program. I realized that they focus on marketing, especially on consumer products and branding. I loved consumer products. So I became very passionate about um, a goal of going into consumer products and being a, a product manager. My father had a big influence in my life. And when I told him that I wanted to apply and, and work for General Mills or Quaker Oats or Kellogg, one of those, he said, sales. You have to, you have to get sales experience first. It was just like he was adamant about that. So he convinced me um, instead of going into consumer products right away, because that's, those are the companies that came to Northwestern to recruit, that I should really think about a, a career in sales first. So I ended up with AT&T in their national sales program, which was an awesome experience. And they had their traditional like six months of intensive sales training where you, you were videoed all the time, you were rejected all the time, and then they kind of threw you out there, and I was in Chicago, and they threw me out to the motor vehicle district. So my, my uh, customers were both auto dealers, used car dealers and parts dealers, and marinas in the south side of Chicago, and then Kankakee and, and further south. And I literally would leave my office. And this is the time when um, uh, telephone systems were still controlled, price controlled. So it was like I was already handcuffed, so it was your selling skills. And I would leave the office and tell them I liked yellow roses for my funeral because 
I would be meeting these car dealers like the, at the gates where these barking dogs, padlocked fences, and they'd, they'd let me in. It was, a, it was a really great, great experience. So rejection, closing the sale. I would call my dad on my way back from Kankakee or south side of Chicago. And I did that for a year. Well, I did that for a year, motor vehicles. And then I was able to transfer to the consumer products division, still selling telephone systems. But then I said that I got, I got it. I think I got that experience. And it really has helped me all through life because everything's selling, right? You're selling yourself. And so I joined Quaker Oats, died and gone to heaven. I mean, it was, I started there as a marketing assistant on Aunt Jemima Frozen Waffles, graduated to becoming assistant product manager on new cereals, introduced a new cereal. And then really my lifelong dream, I became the product manager on Cap'n Crunch cereals. And with, you know, when your target audience is nine to 11 year olds, your secondary audience are college students. It was, it was the best job because you're really running your own business. You have you know, research reporting to you, manufacturing um, products, everything reporting up through you. So it felt like I was running my own business. Captain Crunch was definitely one of my favorite cereals growing up, so it's funny. But it was also one of my dad's favorite cereals, and he's like 60, so you know, you might have had a little yeah. bit of a, a spill into that market. Yeah. But my, I mean, there's a Mike's lot. Mike's family is not a case study for norm right. normality, <laughs> though. I wouldn't say so. But so there's like a lot to unpack there, you know, and there, you know, there's a lot of experiences throughout that process. But I kind of want to dig into that sales concept, and you know, I think that a lot of people, especially young people today, are kind of afraid of sales, and it's it's you know, oh, well, sales is pushy, getting rejected all the time. So what did you learn from your sales process that allowed you to excel later on? And how did you get past some of those things like the rejection and the barking dogs and all this struggle? And what was your father's feedback along the way when you're calling him after, you know, his daughter just graduated from her MBA and she's going through a job where it probably just seems like this is, the, this is terrible, what's going on, and probably really beat down and he's, you know, got to give you feedback and keep you supportive like what was that relationship like at the same point I um, I was terrified you know at first <clears throat> in the sales process but I will say what AT&T did for me and for others is it was just constant practice and it's like presentation you know the more you get in front of people the more comfortable you'll feel and it really taught me to try not to take things personally and to really understand who your audience is um, to the listening skills, getting feedback, watching body language. And, and I see so often these days that people ignore so much of that. And that there's just little, little nuances that if you understood, you'd, if you listened more, as one of my biggest takeaways. And then not, and tried not to take it personally, but then, you know, understand the no, and then try again, and just keep going for that close. And the other part that I, I try to coach today is once you get that close, stop. People just keep going on, and I'm like, stop. You got it. Don't say anything else. So I, it was practice, 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 and and regardless if it was a car dealer on the south side of Chicago, or if I'm trying to raise a million dollars, you know, in an endowment, you're always selling. You know, you're selling the deal. You're selling the idea, um, and you're selling something that your customer is going to get. So I, I am a little, I'm a lot like my father um, today with my, our own children and also the folks that I mentor about 
how important sales is. Anytime someone has the opportunity to be in sales, I really encourage and people hate it. But I I really try to focus on the benefit of sale. People want to be sold. And it's how you do it. You know, you're not it's not a win lose, it's a win win. And if you try to focus on what's in it for you, what's in it for you, and then you know it's also what's in it for me, it's more of a conversation versus a sale. So I I love it. And I, I really, you know, encourage it. And people even call it different things these days instead of sales, but call it marketing. Mm -hmm. But it's it's a sales process. And my dad was very encouraging to me. He was my biggest fan, my biggest cheerleader. I always knew I could call him. If I got rejected, I might be a little teary on the way back, and he would really boost my confidence. And he also knew how he's, he had been there. He knew how tough it was, what a tough road. So. He was, he was awesome. So you reached this product manager position, and how long do you stay there, and how does your career unfold from that point? So during that time, I met my, my husband, I've just celebrated our 33rd anniversary. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And um, so we got married in 85, and I, I think I just had just become product manager. And um, he had been with AT&T, that's where we met, and he had gone on to start his own business, so he was an entrepreneur and coincidentally in the plastics business, which was kind of funny, a different kind of plastics. So we never, literally never saw each other. He would go to north side of Chicago, north part of Illinois, and I would go in the city. Um, and, and both of us were having tremendous experiences. But then we decided to have kids. So in 87, um, was pregnant, and I was uh, about to be promoted to product uh, group manager. And, um, just a very funny story. My dad had started calling me about three years prior to that. And this is before cell phones, but every Sunday night he'd call me. So when are you guys coming back to Columbus? When are you coming to Columbus? I'm like happy as a clam. I this is Chicago. I love love Chicago. Love my job. Love my husband. He's happy. Sorry. So for three years, bamboo shoots under the fingernails. When are you coming back to Columbus? Come to Crane because they had now decided that. They, their board had talked to my father and my uncle and said, okay, you're now getting to this retirement age. You, their business was booming. They had been getting calls to sell the company, go public, do something. And, um, you know, they had taken to heart, you know, they probably should do something instead of just laughing it off. And they, the reason their anti-nepotism policy in the first place is they had put together an incredible management team they were all their contemporaries, and they had built this amazing business. Unfortunately, all those uh, contemporaries of theirs were their age, so they were all in their 60s, so there was no succession plan. That's a typical entrepreneurial fatal flaw sometimes. And so they had said, why don't you think about family? And um, they had talked to their key you know, executive team who said, absolutely, you've got to keep this private. You've got to keep this family owned. It's just a great, it's a great gig, great thing going on and it had grown substantially. So my two older brothers had become doctors. Uh, my cousin uh, had become a lawyer, teachers, and my dad said, I'm the perfect. I mean, business, I, right in his shadow. So he started calling me, and my younger sister had followed in my footsteps and had become a product manager at Kraft. So he started calling me, and we were in Hawaii for a vacation 
all of us, the whole family. We had just bought a 1920s home a block off of Lake Michigan, the North Shore of Chicago, and had just done a major renovation. We were in Hawaii, and I was pregnant, and um, my dad would slip pieces of paper underneath the door every day with the to-do list of what I was going to do that day with him or things we were going to talk about. And one of those was, you know, coming back to Columbus. And I said, you know, I was like, this isn't a good time to talk about it. We're on vacation. So at the airport in Chicago when we were leaving, you know, Dad winked at me again and we drove home and I don't know what happened. Walked to the house, beautiful renovation. I turned to my husband like, I don't know, you know, quality of life. We are both working 12, 14-hour days. I would literally take the 4.30 a.m. train into Chicago. But when you love what you do, it doesn't matter. Getting home at like 9 o'clock at night. I said, you know, th this can't last forever. I'm pregnant, and is this all there is? You know, it was a publicly held company, Quaker Roads, quarterly earnings, and it was a, you know, it was a little bit of a rat race, but when, you learn, when you're learning so much. And I said, I don't know, maybe this is a time we should think about. And my husband was, they had gotten through the learning curve of opening their own business. And um, I don't know, it was that night we said, let's do it. Oh, and my dad, I, that's what he said. He winked at me and said, I'll make it a package deal for the two of you. So we just decided to do it. And just to add to that, so in October of, 19, well, in the summer of 1987, we sold our house, we moved back to Columbus and then took a, basically a two month vacation in Europe. Came back and started in October. And the real blessing of it was that month in October of 87, my dad was diagnosed with lung cancer. He hadn't smoked for like 13 years, even though he always bummed cigarettes. And um, that was just, I mean, a reckoning for all of us. But fortunately, he had one lobe of, of one lung removed, and it made no, I mean, it didn't impact the quality of his life. He didn't have to have chemo, radiation. So he was moving forward, but it changed him. You know, mortality kicked in. And he was a different person. And so the ability to mentor under him, and then we convinced my cousin Mike to come back. To, he was with a law firm in Columbus doing a lot of our crane work outside. So he came back, and we had the ability to mentor under our two dads who were best friends and brothers, very different, but very successful. And four years later, my dad passed away. So if I hadn't made that decision, you know, I wouldn't have had the luxury of mentoring under him and really learning about business. So it was fate. What are some of the most monumental things that stick out throughout those four years that you look back on now and reach the level of success that you have and say, without that, I don't think I'd be where I am today? Is there anything in particular that really sticks out in your mind? I always think of the, um, we had a th uh, three-shift operation, so we were 24, five days a week. And once a quarter, my dad and my uncle would have shift meetings. So we had 500 or so employees. I always went to all of them, including, you know, 7 a.m. in the morning with guys that had been working all night. And my dad didn't necessarily call them values like we do today, like these are our values. But he always talked about the foundation of the company and what, what made it successful. It was all about the people. It was all about what we now define as our six values of our company. And it wasn't until later that I would go back and look at the notes from our shift meetings and realize how much he valued um, the people. And it was respect and dignity and about our communication and being a family and teamwork. It was all about people. 
and relationships. And I think that's what made us successful, that we had an open door policy, that we really believed everyone there was part of our family. And my, when I used to go to Northwestern and I would fly home occasionally, I would take the last flight so I'd get in at midnight. My dad would pick me up from the airport and we'd always had to stop at the plant on the south side of Columbus. And he'd walk through and what I realized is he knew everyone by name. And not only that, but he'd know who just got married, who just had a baby, you know, what would they, you know, they're on some basketball team. And he'd introduce me and he would be so proud to introduce me, but he'd equally proud to introduce his people. And I think that was the biggest learning about how important the little things are, about how you treat people. Um, and, and obviously he did a lot of listening because he, you know, we didn't have name tags back then, but he really listened to who people were and what they were about. So that, that and, and that and the way my dad and my uncle um, work so well together, they are very, very different, but they valued the differences in each other and they learned from each other. And my cousin Mike is just like his father and I am just like my dad. So we work really well together. If we hadn't had that opportunity, I don't know if it would have been the same. And it's, you know, with a family business, we're third generation. So it was one thing, my grandfather, then my, the two brothers were best friends. They had lost everything in the depression, another story, and ended up living in an apartment, you know, in the same tiny little room together. So they really learned to um, rely on each other. So then when you have cousins, we didn't grow up together, but we've become very close. Now we go into fourth generations, cousins of cousins. So that's where family businesses, you know, the challenge of the, the success of going from second generation to third generation is something like 12% success and going to fourth is 3% success. But it's all because of that mm -hmm. communication. So I rambled, sorry, but those are some of the learnings with my dad those four years. No, that was great. No, yeah, I really enjoyed that. And I think, so let's talk a little bit about the, the Crane Group now compared to what it was when you took over. So when you started in those four years that you were being mentored and kind of when you first started, what, what was Crane Plastics doing then? It was such a different company then. It was a <clears throat> manufacturer. It was Crane Plastics and we made parts and pieces for OEMs, for other businesses. And the biggest example would be um, Anderson Windows. So we made a lot of the plastic jam liners and um, parts that go into windows. So we had no control over their sales, right? So we would just ship what they told us to. And we made stuff for Rubbermaid trash cans. We made um, storm door liners. We, we started out by making um, edges of uh, kitchen counters to dress them up. We made hula hoops back in 56, 57, but that didn't last that long, but it, it afforded us a, a, a next, another extruder. We had grown so dramatically during the post-war years when plastics became really big. We, made, we were the first to make vinyl siding, but we didn't make it under our name. We made it for another manufacturer. We co-manufactured it. So during those four years uh, under my dad, started talking about diversifying. So we had all of our eggs in building products, basically, and all of our eggs in PVC, polyvinyl chloride. So we talked about M&A, and my dad would say, if I can stand up on the roof of our building and see it, I might think that we could purchase that, but beyond that, we're not going to. So we, we warmed him up a little bit to the idea of how important it was to diversify, and we, start, we didn't level off in sales, but started seeing some trends. 
Before my dad passed away, we made our first acquisition of a business in Scranton, Pennsylvania called Compression Polymers, and they made lots of different things. And that was the start of our M&A. And then we acquired Able Roof and another company called Suburban Steel. And we treated them as passive investments. So we really didn't actively manage them, even though we owned the majority of those businesses. And it wasn't until after my dad passed away that we started thinking about could we add value to the to strategy and leadership. And then, you know, through the 90s, we had lots of entrepreneurs coming to us. The idea of making plastic um, covers for stadium seating, PVCs, that could be school colors and they could actually be warmer than steel or they wouldn't abrade like wood. We had a chiropractor come to us who would stand in the rain and stand, stand in the rain on his roof and look at his gutters and see all the, the rain going in there and the leaves and he developed a gutter guard that we ended up making. And we started toying around with wood polymers and we were one of the first to markets in a wood composite decking. And so we started skunk, and I think it was part of my background being um, product marketing. We started toying around with developing our own products. But Anderson Windows and our siding kind of overshadowed everything else we did. So in 99, we brought in Anderson Consulting, which, which is another thing that my father would never do. It's like not created here. We don't believe in consultants. But we brought them in and we said, we had grown so large, we've lost our entrepreneurial roots. We have too many layers. We had started profit sharing in 1969, which was the, my dad always called it the glue that kept us together. But we, our associates on the floor, you know, now 600 or so associates, they couldn't really understand what difference they were making. So with cons the consultant's help, we imploded the company into six different LLCs. So we had our original crane plastics. We broke out apart our crane siding, timber tech, our decking, another uh, products group, and some others. And then we brought in our able roofing and said, we're going to actively manage this. We're going to actively manage all of these companies that we've invested in. That was the beginning of where we are now. So fast forward, and people thought we were crazy. But fast forward today, we're more like a private equity group, but we're a family office. So we own the majority interest in four very different types of companies today. We're not in plastics, and we're not in um, building products per se, except, I guess, Able Roof, which we still have. And then we have a, like 50% of our businesses in owning and managing businesses, and about 50% of our businesses in investments. Private equity, so we're in a private equity portfolio where we have minority interest, real estate, hedge funds, stocks, bonds, and then venture capital and entrepreneur, entrepreneurial things. We have now just a, a smaller headquarters in the Belmont Building downtown. We've moved from the south side about 11 years ago. And our group, the Belmont Group, we call them, um, we help, we add value to those companies by providing strategy, leadership and development, finance, help with taxes, IT, um, and then also, I'm missing something, um, a variety of roles. And um, so that's now where I spend my time. And we are actively you know, looking for other uh, portfolio businesses. So we're in pet boarding. And we, the headquarters are in Jacksonville, Florida. It's called Pet Paradise. We have 31 locations, and we're growing eight to nine a year. 
Um, we're in um, gas detection out of Valparaiso, Indiana, so it's more of a commercial application where a utility company is with um, the different devices we have, we're trying to detect five different gases underground, and also for EMS going into a fire. We have um, Able Roof, which is now under the umbrella of Crane Renovation Group, where we are in a variety of residential. Uh, we are in Mr. Roof in about six different states, and then Able here in Columbus, and then we have big commercial activity down in uh, Texas and Florida and Tennessee and Georgia. And then our final business is a huge crushing and screening machine manufacturer just on 70 East and 310. So very different businesses, but the commonality is they're rapidly growing and where we can really um, add value to those companies. So it's a lot of fun. It's a lot to do. It's a lot going on. And having such a large breadth of a portfolio, you know, do you look for, obviously the leadership is really important because you can't be focused on all the different sectors. So I guess just to touch lightly on what do the leaders in those companies look like? Do you guys go in and look to put your own leadership in or do you look for good leaders first and then say, okay, this is a business yeah. that we also like? That's a great question. You know, it goes, harkens back to my dad. We, you know, once we identify a category we want to be in or an industry, we sometimes use brokers, sometimes on our own, but it's all about the leadership. And our goal is to find great leadership, keep them in place. Now, once they're in place, we do some assessments of how, where they have some opportunities, and we can help supplement them, not necessarily with our folks, but we can help, find, help them find some quality talent. The, sometimes the hardest thing for an entrepreneur, and some of our companies still have the founder and some don't, but is talent acquisition. They're reluctant to invest in talent. And that's our, we think, the biggest asset to a team is, first of all, the ability to, we always call it working on the business versus working in the business. And that's also tough for someone that's firefighting every day that's an entrepreneur or any CEO in a business. But we help them like at least have one eye look three years out and keep one eye on the business. And with that eye looking out with our team, what resources do they need, whether it's capital? And they're more like, likely to want to invest in capital, but it's harder for them to say, you really need to invest in a VP of research or customer experience. But that's where we've, I think we've made the biggest difference is not forcing them, but to encourage them to help sell them on the idea of you know, investing in talent because that's really going to help propel them forward. And I think, you know, from my perspective, and obviously I'm not a business owner, I don't have a lot of experience here, but the way I see it is that with those capital investments, a lot of these folks see, like, it's there's hard numbers, right? You can sit there and calculate, Return like, on okay, here's my, here's my ROI, yep. this is fine, it's safe, right? But when you're investing in, in talent and a human being, there's a lot more variables, there's a lot more, I don't know if this is going to pay off. Exactly. So you have that pushback. How do you get past that with people that you're working with? I mean, how do you show them that, hey, people are worth this investment? Well, you, you can use an ROI. I mean, it depends on what type of person it is, but if they can bring in business, for example, we can actually show a return on that. We also, by example, we've had a great deal of experience over the last 20, 30 years. So we try to share with them some examples, have them talk to some of our other CEOs. And then we do we really do try to use KPIs or you know some ROI to really share about we're all about value creation. So if you invest in 
a VP of operations or, you know, an, in marketing or in um, digital. So, you know, we're investing in some IT. We can really, we can kind of try to quantify what business that could bring in or how that could change the trajectory of our business. So we do try to quantify it as much as possible and not, not just at the heartstrings or it'd be good for you, trust us by example or by really trying to quantify it. And I think where things get kind of interesting when you start getting to really high level talent, you start getting to people who are getting paid um, a large sum of money for the way that they think and their ability to bring strategy and innovation to the table. And it can be hard sometimes to, um, when you can't put a transactional value behind the ROIs, where I think that, you know, there can be that disconnect. But obviously you guys have years of showing that that strategy and that approach works and bringing that to the table for your um, portfolio companies probably carries a lot of weight. I'm interested to hear um, transition a little bit to the kind of the more of the boards that you sit on. We talked about bank shares and Ohio Health and the role that you've had in the community. Um, maybe we talk a little bit about, you know, some of your most prominent roles that you're holding now in those areas, what they mean to you and the different initiatives that you guys have working. Sure. Um, so I've been on the Huntington board since 2010 and it has been an incredible learning experience for me. I, mean, I hope that I've been able to provide some value to Huntington, but it's really helped me lead at Crane. Um, you know, one from a board perspective, as we have a board at Crane, it's helped me think about professionalizing, always professionalizing our board. It's helped me think about strategy and adding value. The board members I'm with, I've developed great relationships with, with and so I've been able to, and also the executive leadership team, including Steve Steinhauer, they've really helped in a lot of different parts of our business and have really helped me think more strategically. Um, and, and just in terms of the challenges that a, a financial institution has may be different than any one of ours, but there's always some similarities. And you're just talking about talent. You know, there's a talent war out there and you know, on the different committees that I sit on within the board, inevitably it's, it's about people and it's about talent. So I, I've been able to use some of my experiences at Crane to help at Huntington and vice versa. So it's, a bit, it's been a great experience um, at Huntington. And, and also just from a community perspective with Huntington, um, they're very involved with Pelotonia. I've been very involved with Pelotonia and just helping to build awareness in the community about um, how great Huntington is and within our footprint and what great community stewards there are. Then I'm on the Columbus, well, I'm on Ohio Health. It's been another um, really wonderful experience. I've been on there about the same, a little bit less um, amount of time. David Blum is just a great CEO. So watching him, and he's going through um, succession right now. He's announced after 16 years as a CEO. He's, and as a board member, I've watched over the last five years as he's allowed his executive team to have different experiences. So he's been able to watch, observe, watch his talent, and then prepare his successor, and it's flawless. And so one of my goals in the future is preparing succession. So I'll be able to use a lot of what I've learned um, on Ohio Health Board as well. And then again, you know, a health institution is so different, the challenges, the regulations they have, but there's always tidbits that I can take back to Crane and hopefully some that I can share. And again, in the community, Ohio Health plays, and they're, they're really growing their footprint, as Huntington is, and there's a lot of similarities there. And then Columbus Partnership, then that's some other nonprofit boards, and I could talk about Reeb Avenue Center, but Columbus Partnership, I, I was one of the 
early members there. I think we only had 10. Now we have 75, which is startling. But to really witness the evolution of where Columbus Partner is, is today versus where it was, the perception of Columbus Partnership today versus back in the earlier days, in the late 90s, um, and what Columbus 2020 has added to this community, what Smart Columbus has added. And I think Columbus Partnership today is so much more inclusive. We've really tried to bring entrepreneurs on board, young entrepreneurs, and also diversified, you know, just not your typical CEOs. So I think we're a, a better organization because of that. Yeah, and you mentioned the Reeb Avenue Center, so I want to talk a little bit about that. I know you mentioned uh, mentioned it before you started your day at the Reeb Avenue Center. Mm -hmm. You've got you know real passion for community service and, and the community in general here in Columbus. So tell us a little bit about what the Reeb Avenue Center is and kind of how it came about. Yeah. So I will try to be brief. I could go on forever. So it's my happy place. I've always been involved in the community. So our business, our company started on the south side of Columbus. So I've had an affinity. <clears throat> and all of us at Crane have had an affinity for the south side. So when Mayor Coleman was still here, it's now about, um, had it been about six years ago, seven years ago, he drove around the south side and realized it was a very underserved area of our community, like their pockets came back and his first call was to Jim Grody, who was the chairman of Donato's Pizza, who grew up in the South End. Anyone from the South Side can call the South End. I didn't, so I can't, I'm South Side. So he called Jim and said, I need champions. We, we've got to do something. He, he didn't have an answer, but he wanted some people around the table. He said, I need champions. So Jim said, I've got just the right person, and he called his daughter, Jane. Jane and Jim have both been working on um, an early learning center that was located on the south side that was having some challenges. Jane called me and we had lunch and I said, I'm happy to help, thinking that our company might just invest a little bit and go to a few meetings and that'd be the end of it. That's what happens, you know, with a lot of us, we get busy. So, you know, a year later, there's a group of us sitting around the table, business people that were really champions of the south side, faith-based leaders, community people, nonprofit leaders um, and some and city people like what should we do and the the, the brilliant idea was so well, quickly the statistics 22% unemployment 68% poverty one in four homes boarded up 25% of youth aged like 16 to 25 weren't in school hadn't graduated didn't have a job so you can understand the safety issues a track record far worse than the city of Columbus in safety drugs trafficking, I mean, 40% mobility, so kids, almost half of kids were moving uh, every year, so you just can't get an education. So with that, um, as a backdrop, the smartest decision we made was, why don't we ask the community what they need versus us do-gooders saying, why don't we do this? And so we um, went to 2,700 households and asked them what they needed. And it came back as a heat map. I mean, there weren't surprises, but it was in their words, you know, jobs. You know, they really needed to be, to get, they really wanted jobs. And they wanted to be upskilled. You know, they needed help with that. They needed education, both for them and for their kids. Quality education. Healthcare, you know, affordable healthcare. Housing, there's a critical shortage of housing, so safe, affordable housing. And then safety. The, the zone of the south side is like triple the zone of, of anywhere else, but it was staffed the same. 
So through all that, you know, sitting around the table with all, uh, all these people, people started raising their hands saying, a group of guys, Jane's dad, Jim Grody, um, Don Kelly, Bob Weiler, Jim Williams, guys that were in housing said, we're going to take housing. And they learned from other neighborhood revitalizations. They developed a big fund. And they brought in some private equity groups. They brought in Habitat and Homeport. Have already impacted 200 homes in the area. And the trajectory is 700 homes in the next three years. The city raised its hand and said, you know, we really do own safety. We will work on neighborhood policing. We'll focus on that. And we've got to own health, too. They had just built the John Maloney Health Center, which is almost across the street from what is now the Reeb Avenue Center. They said, we'll really focus on that. <clears throat> so Jane and I were like the last at the table. The last two issues were education, adult and childhood education, and jobs. And about the same time, coincidentally, the city needed where Afrocentric school was, right by the freeway. They needed that geography. They needed that land. They swapped with city schools and gave them a whole new campus for Afrocentric, which is beautiful. And in turn, Columbus City Schools gave them this closed 110-year-old elementary school called Reeb Avenue Elementary School, a beautiful three-story kind of red brick building that had been closed for a good five years, and it was a swing school before that. But despite all that, no graffiti, no glass broken, no copper taken. It was just a prized asset in the community. So the mayor said, here you go, 67,000 square feet. Jane, Tanny, you, you can have it. I'm like, right. So 250 tours later, that we gave legislators, nonprofit leaders, you name it, focused on education and workforce, we, you know, fast forward to, oh, we, we found 14 nonprofit partners that would, wanted to be involved. Now, then we found out it would cost $12.5 million to rehab the building, and we raised that. And then another million dollars just for operations the first year. Developed a pro forma. We had the help of a wonderful consultant, Carrie Millard, I have to give a shout out, who really helped us through this whole project, rehabbing it. It needed a new roof, it had asbestos, it needed new windows, needed um, uh, the only restrooms are on the lower level. Restrooms that didn't have an elevator, so a lot of work. When we put the pro forma together and knew that we had we're gonna nonprofits were gonna inhabit this looked at what the going rate of a nonprofit per square foot versus our pro forma. Our pro forma said it, we'd have to charge like 14 to $15. The, the market rate was about nine to 10. So there was a delta in our needs of about $200,000 a year. So we raised $4 million and now $4.2 million for an endowment, which would spin off that amount of money needed to bridge the gap and, and ensure sustainability in the future. So in 2014, September, we started construction. So in addition to this beautiful building, there was an annex, a big gym that lots of elementary schools had, big box added to it, which was the combination gym and um, uh, cafeteria. And they had built an annex in the 60s that was just concrete and cement. That's where we thought the early learning, so we took that early learning center that all of us had been working on across the street that was the highest quality rated but they had gotten down to 20 kids because the conditions were deplorable. We demolished the annex and built a state-of-the-art early learning center and brought them over. So in 2015, September, we opened the doors with 600 people and the governor and the mayor and everyone. And now, three years later, we've had three years into it, we have just a glorious 
place where our neighbors feel hope and that the mayor coined it the hub of hope so we have a the first floor is all about workforce we have specific nonprofits are upskilling and providing employment we have the fabulous roots cafe on the lower level mid-ohio food bank came to us with a pilot idea instead of a soup kitchen which we were going to put there we added a fresh uh, food cafe it was pay as you can or pay it forward and it's all fresh foods so you're treating people with respect and dignity they sit down to a wonderful lunch so we have lunches every day we have a tuesday night community dinner that's open to everyone with the same fresh quality we have up to 400 people that come to that tuesday nights um, we have graduated people into great workforce opportunities we have these early we have now 118 kids in our early learning center we have 200 kids upstairs in boys and girls club every day during the summer camp and over 125 during the school year so it's a buzz with activity and we really think it's changing the kind of the trajectory of the south side so that's a nutshell that was my right. that was my quick version <laughs> <laughs> that was great your passion definitely shines through there and you know with all the energy that you have and all the um, like I said passion that you have for that focus what does the future look like for you and like where your where's your attention gonna be you know over the next five ten years it's I have tentacles at a lot of places but you know first and foremost with our company um, in the next that period of time I would never identify it but really that transition so um, we're in a great place where we are right now with our model um, it will continue to be refined and we and if I had a hand in anything it we've brought to crane group amazing leaders and far younger than me and very diverse so where when I started at crane plastics it was 99.9% .9 men it was all men I would say we have really moved the needle um, one in terms of youth <clears throat> and two in terms of diversity we're in a great place there so my my job is all about developing leaders um, and so we have a fourth generation coming up there's just one currently he's fantastic so really really planning just as I observed Ohio Health and David Blum going through that succession really being thoughtful and mindful about how we look to the future and what that leadership group looks like for crane group going forward and then we have we have a board but we also have a family of over 50 that is unwieldy and that we really get along and so our goal also is to continue that great communication and involvement of our family they're not involved in the day-to-day -day business but they're involved strategically and they're really involved in what crane means to them so educating them and also ensuring that they they're they're shareholders they're owners of our company how do they want to be involved and how they want to be in, the crane be involved in the community so making sure that stays intact and it's really tough it sounds like a lot to think about and i think that's a good place to kind of pivot towards one of our last questions of the show tanny and it centers around the theme of conquering columbus which is live uncomfortably and without telling you too much about it, what do you think of when you hear the phrase, and how would you apply it to your life and career? I love that. I think we should all live uncomfortably. It's like not being on the edge so much, because people when they people hear the edge, it's like, gosh, you're about to go into bankruptcy or you're going to fall off. <clears throat> but I think, you know, sometimes when I talk to, to people, that the Sheryl Sandberg book, Lean In, 
I talk to women's groups quite often, you have to be at the table. So it's uncomfortable. And you know, raise your hand, ask for the next task, or ask the difficult question. You know, listen, listen well, and put yourself out there. And it's in failure is really powerful, but fail fast and learn from it. And we don't do enough of that, like actually any board I'm on or even at Crane. But we're trying to really learn how to fail, as long as you learn. It's a takeaway value, and so. You know, my advice is really put yourself out there, lean in to whatever your passion is. Um, and I, you know, oftentimes to entrepreneurs, I'll use the example of Tanisha Robinson is uh, one of my best pals, and maybe she thinks that I'm her mentor, but she's my mentor. And she, you know, put herself out there. Um, Doug Kreidler from the foundation called entrepreneurs to the table. This is a number of years ago, and then he brought a lot of us old folks in. He didn't have any plans, but he just threw us together and we had dinner together. And I ended up next to this gigantic woman with big hair. She was as far from who I am, but we both kind of leaned into a conversation and we have been like best friends since. And we couldn't be further from each other. But you know, she brings out, I think, the best of me and I try to bring out the best, there's always already the best of her. And I've learned so much from her, but she puts herself out there. She, allows, she takes risks, but she doesn't take stupid risks because she really listens well. She mingles with a lot of different kinds of people that are different from herself, allows herself to do that and to take a risk. So I think that was what makes Columbus special. And there's, you know, we talk about the Columbus Partnership. We have talked about it's been written up about the Columbus Way. And I can't, it's hard to pinpoint what that is. But I think it's our ability here in the community to collaborate. We really come together. And when people come into the community, I think we, we're welcoming. Um, I've been in, in Chicago. I've been in other communities where it's hard to break through. I think it feels pretty comfortable here. I think entrepreneurs are really welcome, and we seek them out. This Columbus was and is a town of entrepreneurs. And just an example, my daughter, one daughter, is getting married, grew up in Columbus, went away to school. I mean, she thought Columbus was all right, didn't really think about living here afterwards. Went away to school and then went to D.C. for four years, then New York, then came back here for business school. And when she came back after eight years, like, what happened? And she fell in love with Columbus. I'm hoping, she lives in Brooklyn, New York now, but I'm going to reel her, she and her soon-to-be husband um, back in because I think, you know, I think we think of Columbus differently today. And I think because it's smart and open, we talk about, but I think it's, it's that, I think it's living uncomfortably. I think all of us are starting to believe in Columbus and are starting to put ourselves out there talking about Columbus and um, being open to what's next. And I like smart Columbus. I mean, how cool is that, you know, that we can think that we're going to be ahead of other communities and autonomous vehicles or AI and, and think about work differently. It's pretty cool to think Columbus could do that. It absolutely is, Tanny, and I think that's a great answer. We really appreciate you joining us on the show today. We've had a lot of fun. Thank you so much, guys. It's, it's been great being here. Yeah, and Conquerors, thanks for listening. That was Tanny Crane, president and CEO of the Crane Group. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. We'll talk to you next week. If you guys enjoyed that episode, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitchers, whatever your favorite podcast app is. 
And go ahead and click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss another episode of Conquering Columbus. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to say thanks to all of our incredible sponsors one more time. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. Our next sponsor you might be slightly familiar with. You may recall a previous Conquering Columbus episode we did, episode number 26. We interviewed Stuart Crane, who bootstrapped his healthware software business to an eventual $43 million exit in 2013. Well, he's back at it with a new startup called Voice Metrics, based here in Columbus, Ohio. Stuart's new company got going last fall, and they've landed a number of customers, including Crosschecks, which is one of Columbus's high-flying VC-backed companies. Voice Metrics is a voice application available for Alexa, Google Assistant, and Siri that allows businesses to get their KPIs, metrics, and any business information just by asking. To give you an example of how this works, here's what it sounds like. Open Voice Metrics. Good morning, Robert. Our sales yesterday was $17,500, and we had 24 new signups. Website traffic is up 13%, and we are 82% to our monthly revenue goal. Have a great day. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them is a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.